Hey, the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible by Samaritas, which is the state's largest private foster care and adoption agency. But they do a heck of a lot more than that. They've been serving homeless families, persons with disabilities, abused and trafficked women. They're also one of the largest resettlement agencies in the state. They provide market rate and affordable housing for seniors and HUD housing for families. And they also have skilled nursing, memory care and rehab communities in Grand Rapids, Cadillac and Saginaw. Samaritas. Thanks for their support. Great organization doing great stuff all around the state. Hey, greetings, everyone. Craig here. It is Tuesday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very much for checking it out today. Coming up on today's program, for those of you that weren't able to tune in live while we were at the Mackinac Policy Conference, I'm replaying some of the better interviews that I did up there. And today, got a couple of great guests. Of course, Michigan Congressman Debbie Dingell will be our guest. We'll talk a little bit about bipartisanship in Washington. Does it exist and where could it exist? And also a conversation with Rip Rapson, president of the Kresge Foundation. They announced a pretty significant investment for early childhood education in the city of Detroit. And of course, they've been involved in a number of other projects as well. We'll talk about the role of philanthropy in the resurgence in the city of Detroit. That's all coming up on the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. And this is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. We are live at the Mackinac Policy Conference. Detroit Regional Chamber's annual event, and one of the people that I talk to every single year up here is my guest, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. Craig, it is great to be with you, and it's great to be back on air with you. I missed you for a little while. Well, you know, we should let folks know you were on the Board of Governors at Wayne State University, which, of course, held the license when I was at WDET, and we had many conversations back then, which is about a lot of stuff. But uh, let's talk about what you're doing in Congress right now. You have been uh, out there with Fred Upton the last couple of days talking about at least the Michigan delegation finding ways to get along, cooperate, work together on projects that everybody agrees on. Uh, and most of that centers on environmental issues, obviously, PFAS contamination, uh, Asian carp. Let's talk about that for just a second. A lot of money from the Army Corps of Engineers to actually do something about this. Are you satisfied? Is it enough? It's never enough because we've got a lot of problems. But I will say that this delegation, when it comes to fighting for issues that really matter, cleaning up our water. Yeah. You know, this administration sends the Great Lakes Initiative budget up every year, takes all the money out. That Every state that touches the Great Lakes works together, restores the money many times, increases the budget over the year before. Uh, we've got a Great Lakes are twenty per, more than twenty percent of the fresh water in the world. We have to protect these lakes. Uh, we've been pushing the Corps of Engineers for a very long time yes. to address this issue on Asian carp. We've seen the reports in the last few weeks that we're actually seeing D- DNA in our Great Lakes. That needs to worry all of us. We're going to take a trip on July one, bipartisan, but we've got to actually implement the plan it took too long to get the report out and we have got to make sure the asian carp do not hit our well, great the lakes. army corps of engineers is not known for being fast no they are thorough yes they um are. you know so once they get started on this obviously that's going to be there but i mean what's what's the potential timeline for actually putting a, a better fix in place well i think all of us are uh that's why when you say is there enough money are you happy we need to speed this along i think uh i found it very alarming when we found the dna yeah. evidence in the great lakes and Asian carp in our Great Lakes. People really don't understand how dangerous that will be to the fish that are in our Great Lakes now, the threat that it is to the smaller fish, to the nat- natural species, etc. So 
we have got to make sure that we are accelerating any plans and we keep them out. Well, you, you mentioned, of course, the, the bipartisan sort of nature of cooperation when it comes to environmental issues, protecting the lakes. What about sort of like a regional block of, of, of elected officials from both parties to advocate for this? Are we starting to see that emerge? And is that maybe going to be you know, a force for good in politics that the Great Lakes as a region sort of band together on these things and push back against some, some silly decisions on a national level? So... You know, history ebbs and flows. There's yeah. been a time that the Midwest was strong and together. It's been too partisan of late. But so, for instance, we're having a, a dinner with Marcy Kaptur, and I've put it together with the women, mm -hmm. uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, of the Midwest to, uh, to look at doing those issues. Mi uh, the mid We've got a Midwest coalition that we've got a Great Lakes. I'm co-chair of the Great Lakes Coalition, bipartisan. We do need to. You know, I think too, t too often the coasts tend to dominate politics, and we don't look at the issues that really matter to working men and women across the country. I think it's an important caucus group, and we need to pull together and make our voices heard. It's not new. In 2008... When the autos were going through a difficult time, the coasts would have put the autos out of business, and it was the Midwest states that knew the importance of the auto industry that did the automotive rescue. Well, the automotive industry, obviously, in a state of flux right now. Um, you know, your late husband, of course, was a huge advocate for the auto industry. You've carried on that tradition as well. But when you look at some of the disruptions being created by ongoing disputes over trade, um, we're talking about potential tariffs on imports and auto imports, steel, aluminum, agricultural tariffs that we're seeing here in the state. What can we do to give some sort of certainty to the businesses that uh, their, their supply chain is not going to be completely disrupted by uh, sort of myopic decisions? So I talked to Ambassador Lighthouser, who is the USTR trade representative at least once a week. And I understand the importance of trade. I believe it's why Donald Trump became president, because I think too many Democrats didn't understand the importance of good, strong trade policy. My problem with the president's trade policy is it's inconsistent, it's all over the map, and nobody knows what they're dealing with. Uh, I think it's very important we get a revised NAFTA, that we have to play in a level playing field. We have empty factories still all over the state because NAFTA really impacted mm -hmm. the auto industry and hurt it and shipped a lot of jobs overseas. I will likely vote for NAFTA 2.0, I call it 2.0, with a yep. couple of changes. One, General Motors located a plant in Mexico last August and is paying $1.50 an hour. I want a trade agreement that is going to give us a level playing field and not allow that $1.50. It has to have stronger labor enforcement in it. And two, the pharmaceutical provision in it will raise prescription drugs. Administration's very aware the speaker is working with them. We need to address those two issues. But we do need to, and we can't play politics. We've got to get a new NAFTA 2.0 that is a fair playing field for our workers. Well, I mean, I think the whole idea around it originally was that the, the, you know, the wages in places like Mexico would eventually rise, which, you know, that never happened, really. I mean, no, they did stayed not. depressed there. We've seen other countries where there's a lot of manufacturing. Average wages have actually gone up. China, it's getting more expensive to manufacture there than it used to be. But Mexico has stubbornly kept it low Correct. and, and it did sort of lead to that imbalance. Is there anything that you could do in a trade agreement that would require them to actually pay more we money? We need to strengthen the labor provisions in 
the renegotiated NAFTA. Uh, we need to let them organize. We need to ensure that they're being paid more. And it has to be st- there have to has to be enforcement provisions. Sure. Uh, that Mexico did vote on strengthening their labor laws, but enforcement's not there. And we have to make sure that there are enforcement provisions in there. Uh, you, you were making some uh, comments yesterday about a House vote on whether or not to leave the Paris Climate Accords. The House is voting, say, no, we should stay in this. Uh, we have still, most of the countries are still on board staying in this. The United States obviously wants to pull out a symbolic vote because the Senate's never going to take this up. Why is it important to pass it anyway? Well, I wouldn't say that the United States wants to pull out of it. I'd uh, no, say the, the President, President, President Trump yes, wants let's to pull out of it. I think sense. that the American people think we should stay in it. I think it's very important to clarify it because we need to work with, you know, we, we've seen a panel of scientific experts tell us what is happening to the environment in the world. And all none of us uh, can't see it every single day with the dramatic weather impact that we are seeing with hurricanes and fires and floods that are happening it's, you know, places in the Midwest like us are seeing uh, extreme weather that we have never seen before. Temperatures below 50 degrees. Uh, we've got to, everybody's got to contribute to protecting our climate. The glaciers, the ice is melting. It, it's, so it's important that we send a symbol too, and that other countries know that there are many of us who think the importance of staying in the Paris Climate Accord. Congressman woman uh, Debbie Dingle, my guest right now on the Craig Folly Show here on Deadline Detroit. Um, I'm not going to ask you if you're in favor of impeachment at this point in time, but Robert Mueller made some statements yesterday about his report and, and frankly said, you know, we were not in a position to charge him. We just weren't allowed to do that. There's at least a little bit more clarity on where he was coming from in his investigation. It's a lot different than what the president said. No, no collusion, no obstruction. That's not what that report suggested at all. Mr. Mueller seemed to want to reinforce that a little bit yesterday. We are only a year and a half out from the next election. Is this a discussion we should be having about whether or not these are impeachable offenses, or should this just be something that we we let go to the next election? So nobody's above the law, and I think it's very important to follow the facts. Uh, and I think that, depending on who you were, you heard. I think that Mueller yesterday was saying, "Congress, do your job." Yeah. And he also, I've, I've actually, I'm in my third reading of this report. Uh, uh, was very clear yesterday, but also in the report that he was that a sitting president could not be indicted by the Justice Department. Yeah. So those were all clear. I, I will say to you that I've also, having read this report, and the thing that bothers me the most and that nobody talks about is the fact that Russia is trying to divide us as a country. And they're trying to attack the very fundamental pillars of our Constitution. Well, and, and he said yesterday, he said they succeeded. Yeah, they are. So what I worry about is helping them succeed further. And a partisan impeachment will tear this country apart. Well, I mean, when Richard Nixon was impeached, it became not a partisan thing. When the evidence was pretty clear that something bad happened, enough people said, you know what, it's not going to work. We're, he's going to be gone, and the votes were there in the Senate to do it. Uh, if there is something that's clear, and you will have access to more information than most of us will at some point, once the unredacted parts are made available, uh, obviously this is being dragged out through the courts, you, you say follow the facts. Do you get a? Do you think you're going to be able to get all the facts? Anytime well, soon. I, it's going to be difficult. I think the president, as Richard Nixon did, and I was, I don't know if the word lucky is the right word, but I was lucky. Uh, I was working for Senator Bob Griffin. I was young. 
uh, uh, it was an intern, but he was very good to me. He taught me a lot. And I actually flew back with him the day that he announced that he thought that the president needed to resign. And he talked to me uh, about those facts. And I think that we need to follow. I think everybody's got to look at what those facts are. We can't turn a blind eye. So I think that's why I think oversight is very important. I, I think the president, the things that bother me the most is the president saying, I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. It's unacceptable to say you're not going to do anything for 18 months. You can't refuse. The Congress is an equal branch of government. You cannot refuse to provide necessary data. He's not sending witnesses up to the Hill on anything. That's unacceptable. And I think if he keeps going down this path, it is going to make it very difficult to have any choices. Well, you know, and it's obviously something that I don't want to say it's a distraction because you guys have been passing a lot of bills on the Democratic We've side. Been I mean, passing bills you've been passing a lot of stuff. But is this something that is getting in the way of, of productive dialogue and, and work? You know, both President Clinton and Richard Nixon, when they were under these clouds and were being impeachment hearings were being held, uh, got things done. I mean, the EPA was created by Richard Nixon. A number of Endangered Species Act was passed uh, when that was going on. And President Clinton did several major pieces of legislation, too. President Trump's refusal to look at anything or do anything else, I think, is very dangerous. Uh, and I hope that he won't do that. And we'll have to... Well, you know, there's been a lot of focus on Speaker Pelosi and how she's handling this and trying to keep this caucus in line. A lot of attention being paid to some of the newly elected members of Congress and and is, is the party lurching leftward, all this kind of stuff. Um, do you think people are fairly looking at what the Democratic Party is right now or is it all through the lens of 2020 and we're just looking at the wrong things? So I know that I'm doing what I think is right. And I don't I don't think you can look at. I'm doing what's right for this country because I took an oath to protect the United States of America. And that's what's driving me. And I think that's what's driving Nancy. I think she takes, we love this country. I have strongly supported her uh, where she has been. And I've said that many times because I am worried about what a partisan impeachment would do and how it would tear this country apart. And I think that's what's driving Nancy right now. You know, Michigan is reflective of the rest of the country when it comes to our congressional delegation. And but we're all close. We all talk to each other. You know, I, Rashida, who's district abo- uh, abuts me, but I talk to Haley and Alyssa every day. Andy, uh, I mean, we're we're a delegation that talks to each other, works together, and it, it, we have different perspectives. But we come, we'll listen to each other, and then you, when it's right for Michigan, we come to that conclusion. And I think people need to not fear different perspectives. Compromise isn't a dirty word. That's what we've got to do. But I think that we're in a very serious time for this country. Well, you know, interestingly enough, we'll, we'll sort of end on this sort of cooperation question here. But, you know, here in Michigan, a pretty significant thing that's happening in about 10 minutes. Governor Whitmer's, Whitmer is going to be out on the porch signing this auto insurance reform law. That was an act of compromise. You know, this is something that has been befuddling the state for as long as I can remember. They finally got something done. Uh, does that give you hope for what could happen nationally? I think it has to give us hope. You know, I think people don't, you know, Mike always talks about their Mayor Duggan about this being a Detroit problem, but I live in Dearborn. I, my insurance, my policy was up June 1. It went up $2,000 because I'm a widow and I have, and I've always had higher insurance than many because I'm in one of the top 10 zip codes, which people don't realize. You know, 
fortunately or unfortunately, I mean, I, I still think it's an outrage, and yeah. I can't believe I have to pay that much. A lot of people can't afford that much money. We have to look at these issues, and we've got to come together and solve problems. But, you know, like I said, is there something like this? Can a piece of legislation spark people to actually work together once they figure out that it's not necessarily toxic to do so? Is, are I we that so. close to, to fixing we that used sort of to do balance? That. We used to do that for a long time. As Bob Dole said, I, I was at something at the World War II Memorial honoring Bob Dole last week. Yeah. He said when he was in the Senate, his favorite thing was a bipartisan majority. We'd need more of those. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it right there. Congresswoman Dingle, we always appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. Good to be with you. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Lots more to come. Stay with me. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, as always. Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very much for being with us as we broadcast live from the Mackinac Policy Conference, the Detroit Regional Chamber's annual event that brings together the movers and shakers of Metro Detroit. Um, I am not one of them, by the way, but my next guest is Rip Rapson, of course, is president of the Kresge Foundation, made a little bit of news up here this week, and we appreciate you being with us, sir. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, you, know, you guys have been involved in a lot, and let's just start with the announcement that came out the other day, early childhood programs getting a nice boost, $2.5 million dollars uh, to, to aid in early childhood education programs here in the city of Detroit. Um, Kresge, Kellogg, PNC getting together on this one. This collaboration we are seeing in the mm. philanthropic sector in Detroit has been remarkable over the last few years, but there's obviously still a need. There is a huge need, and uh, the announcement is in many ways sort of a shorthand for the larger need, right? $2.5 million is a big down payment mm-hmm. on a lot of important work. We're going to improve some facilities. We're going to make sure that providers get some of the supports they need. But the bigger question is how do you build out a system that has lots of moving parts to make sure that kids enter kindergarten ready to learn uh, emotionally and intellectually and developmentally? And one of the things that I think is important about this partnership is that Kellogg, for years and years, has been doing early childhood work. We, for years and years, have specialized in facilities. PNC, for years and years, has specialized in extending loans and financial instruments in various ways. And when you bring those three capacities together, it becomes quite powerful. You know, and as you mentioned, this is an attempt to show people a model that can work and and get it kick-started and maybe create something sustainable for the long term. Is there a tipping point, a danger point, I guess, for, from the philanthropic community where people are like, oh, Knight uh, or Kresge or Kellogg is taking care of this, therefore it's off our plate. Is that a balance you have to be careful of? It is a balance. But on the other hand, you've got to get started. And the K-12 system has really proved elusive, I think, for not just philanthropy, but for the public sector, both at the local and state levels. And they'll keep we all will keep chipping away at that and trying to unlock some solutions to how to get our K-12 system working better. But in the meantime, uh, this is a space that in many ways uh, invites innovation. It invites different forms of 
um, participation on the part of the philanthropic sector. We can help improve facilities. We can help uh, credential providers. We can draw people together to compare uh, best practices. We can get parents involved as advocates for the futures of their kids. We can work with the public school systems to create better linkages between the preschool years and the K-12 years. So my sense is that even though there's a lot of good work being done in the communities of Detroit around early childhood, um, philanthropy in particular can kind of step up try some things that haven't been tried, serve as glue to try to make things a little bit more coherent than they've been, and that becomes a real contribution. You know, you make an investment like this, though, and we've been having a conversation around education at this conference mm-hmm. every year for the last... <laughs> your, your face says it all. We've been talking in circles, but it seems to me that the research is, is starting to point us in a direction of you know, making sure that that whole child is is, is cared for in yep. some capacity. It's not just on whether or not the teachers are excellent yep. or whether or not the school is perfect. It's about the wellness and well-being of that kid and their preparedness to actually learn. Food security issues, yep. health care. Housing. Housing. Sure. Are we getting the debate right finally about what we need to fix? If we're actually going to fix education, we've got to deal with poverty. We had a... Uh, a, a Roundtable this morning uh, that that talked about exactly those issues, and I think there is exactly the kind of recognition that you just talked about. All of the questions from the audience had to do with the kinds of wraparound supports that any family needs in order to be successful, particularly families who don't have the kind of income available to them that permit them to have other options. And so, one of the things that we've done with this Hope Starts Here process, mm-hmm. which is the the consortium of folks working on early childhood is the opportunity to take different pieces of those supports and underwrite them properly. So, for example, the facilities is the announcement we made this morning. But we've also invested in a major way in the kind of human service supports that families need in order to be effective. We've invested in the ability of parents to get organized. We've invested in transit. Uh, And so you're absolutely right. This is all sort of a web, and we have to not sort of pretend that if you just sort of pick one piece or another piece that the entire thing is going to fall together. It won't. Well, I mean, obviously this grant is going to be used uh, citywide, but there's also going to be a particular focus over in Lib 6, Livernois 6-mile area that you guys have been very involved in for a long time. Um, What are you seeing so far from your investment that's that's got you encouraged? It's early, but, you know, when we uh, were invited to help Marygrove College Mm -hmm. um, look to the future, uh, we had to do three things pretty quickly. One, we had to stabilize a college that was at risk of closing its doors. And so we spent about a year making sure that its debt was removed, that its assets were protected, and that the educational mission of the institution was preserved. Second, we had to to ask ourselves a question of what kind of programming could be sustained on that site. If the Marygrove model wasn't going to work, could we imagine a different kind of educational consortium on this on the facilities, in the facilities, that would actually hold up over time. And so what we developed was a a, a zero to 20 model where you have a preschool on site, you have a K-12 on site, you have some collegiate programming on site, even some graduate programming on site, and all of that feeds into the broader uh, community. And then the third challenge was how do you think about this campus as a stabilizing factor for the broader Livernois Six Mile area. Because, you know, right on the north end of Marygrove is McNichols Avenue. It's mm-hmm. a traditional, you know, commercial corridor for the city that has been remarkably 
disinvested. I mean, it's it's tragic. We spent a lot of time when I was at the land bank in that neighborhood. Yes, absolutely. And so if you can figure out a way to help revitalize the commercial corridor, to the south is the Fitzgerald and Bagley neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can figure out a way to help stabilize the housing stock, you know, to the east is UD Mercy. And we're creating an open space connection between the two campuses. You've got the Avenue of Fashion just uh, to the north. I mean, there are all of these pieces that end up constituting a complete neighborhood. And any parent in the city of Detroit wants a complete neighborhood. They want to know that they have a school that they can bank on. They want to know that they can shop for goods and services. They want to know that their housing stock is stable, and they want to be able to enjoy open space. And so we, I think, are beginning to see the outlines of what that kind of complete neighborhood can look like in northwest Detroit. You know, obviously, you don't invest this kind of money uh, and not expect to see some sort of results from it. how are you going to gauge success and whether or not this was it? Because, again, it may not be the, the complete yeah. transformation yeah. that somebody would like to see, but if it's incrementally better, is that enough? It is. And my sense is that sometimes uh, with these sort of complex long-term changes that you aim at, you have to uh, be aware to sort of indications of success. Mm-hmm. You know, indicators can be a little bit tyrannical. You can, you know, you <laughs> have to measure income per household or some other quantitative measure. But when you begin seeing people making a choice to stay, when you see people investing in their uh, the upkeep of their house, when you see um, people on the street and street life sort of turning to the storefronts that have traditionally populated the corridors of the neighborhood... Those are indications of success. So I would, I would urge people, including the Kreskis of the world, to not be too hard on themselves. Look for these indications that things are moving in the right direction. Build on it. Uh, and I think ultimately then the indicators sort of fall in place. Well, last question then. I mean, does that make it difficult? I mean, obviously you want to make a big splash on an announcement like this. Oh. Uh, you, you want people to pay attention. How do you make sure that hopes are in line with the realities of what this can and can't do? That's such an interesting question. Uh, there is always an impulse toward impatience. That uh, <laughs> Unless I see it in six months, it's not real. And we understand that. So there, there, there needs to be a combination of some very clear short-term progress. At the same time, you build the long-term systems that will hold people in commitment to their community. But in the short term, opening up a new uh, K-12 school on the Marygrove campus is a big deal. And seeing that first ninth grade class walk through the doorway is a big deal. Breaking ground on a new early childhood center is a very significant deal and I think sort of helps bridge between the aspiration and the reality. Uh, But I, I actually think people of Detroit are ready to see those proof points. I think they're ready to um, take from these investments a sense that the city is sort of turning its face toward them. And that after, you know, a decade of really extraordinary progress, downtown and midtown and uh, new center, that the the progress is making its direction um, uh, in the neighborhoods. Well, broader question for you to, to wrap this up. You know, based on Kresge's involvement in the city of Detroit and Grant Bargain, everything else that went along with that. I mean, there's there's so much work that went into making sure this place had a place, had, frankly, had a future. Uh, when you look back at this last decade and the work that you guys have done, how are you feeling right now? Oh, it's it's breathtaking. It's clearly not enough. But the town I came to 13 years ago 
is both the same town and a very different town. It's the same town in the sense that you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people have remained committed to the future of this city and, and have remained committed to making it sort of the great city that it has always been. But it's a completely different town in the sense that we are building out an infrastructure of change that simply didn't exist, uh, whether that's economic development, whether that's housing, whether that's public service with integrity, whether it's balanced neighborhoods. I think almost every way you turn, you can see these indications of progress uh, that over time will become indicators of real progress in the lives of Detroit residents. Well, we'll have to leave it right there. Rip Rapson, we appreciate your time, sir. Of course, Rip is the president of the Kresge Foundation. Uh, again, big announcement today. Congratulations and thank you. Thank That's you. That's a significant investment uh, that the city needs, and we appreciate it very much. Oh, thank you for your time. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. That's my last interview for today. In the meantime, if you missed anything, they're all on my Facebook page. Check them out, and I do appreciate your support. We'll see you. Wow, that was impressive. Wow. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news.